Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and this week we are starting off with the end of the short-lived freedom freed slaves witnessed immediately following the Civil War and during Reconstruction. No, Reconstruction was not a failure like white supremacist historians want you to believe. Reconstruction was actually proving to be a great success for multiracial democracy. That is, until former Confederates took off their gray uniforms and replaced them with white hoods and sheets. They also were draped in impunity as their night raids of terrorizing, brutalizing, torturing, and killing any African American who has shown even the slightest sign of success became a regular part of life, or whatever you want to call that kind of living under constant physical and emotional duress. But the reality of the white supremacist war on freedom that was the real cause of the end of Reconstruction has been erased by the continued war on the black family. Instead, lost cause myths and those of white chivalry stand in constant denial of what the historical record actually reveals about African-American successes during Reconstruction and the white supremacist war on freedom that crushed it. In a few minutes, we'll speak with historian Kadada E. Williams, author of I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Kadada researches African-Americans' experiences of racist violence at Wayne State University in Detroit, where she teaches courses on African-American history, U.S. history, and historical research methods. She studies what happened to African-American survivors of racist violence. Her first book, They Left Great Marks on Me, African-American Testimonies of Racial Violence from Emancipation to World War I, explored black people's personal testimonies of violence and their role in mobilizing civil rights advocates to fight lynching and other forms of white supremacist oppression. Kadada is one of the co-editors of Charleston Syllabus, Readings on Race, Racism, and Racial Violence, a collection of readings that provided historical context for understanding the 2015 massacre of nine African Americans at Charleston's Emanuel A.M.E. Church. Find out more about uh, Charleston Syllabus at hashtag Charleston Syllabus. Gadada is also the host and co-producer of Seizing Freedom, a Kelly Hardcastle Jones created podcast docudrama about African Americans' fight for liberty and equality during and after the Civil War. You can find the podcast at seizingfreedom.vpm.org. Find out more about Kadada at kadataewilliams.com and follow Kadada on Twitter at Kadada E. Williams. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is. 
Richard Norwood. Richard, what the hell have you been up to? I think this is the first time you've been on the show in like three or four months. Uh, since before uh, Christmas, probably. Yeah, I think it was around uh, yeah, the, like uh, Thanksgiving or sometime around then. So what the oh, hell man. have you been up to? I had a secret mission I was on. Oh, where are you? No, it was not so secret, but it was uh, an amazing uh, work opportunity. Uh, you know the Chicago International Puppet Festival? Yes. Well, uh, they... The, the director found this really cool show that he fell in love with that was c- created in France. Okay. And he negotiated with them to create a, like a U.S. touring version of the show. It's a really small show. It's only like four people total involved in it. Like, okay. Um, so we, we put together a little team, and, and I got to go over to France for a few weeks to learn the show. And then we brought it back here and performed it in January. As part of the International Chicago Puppet Festival. So was this done at the uh, MCA? Is that no, we? No, no, no. It was at the was at the Chopin. Oh no, kidding! Um, but we had like four, five day, five completely sold out shows, and now we're uh, now the show's all packed up in my garage, waiting to uh, do a little bit of touring. Oh. But but the cool thing is that the cool the really like it was re- it was really fun to work on the show because right. uh, it was like a very artistic pro- project. And the puppet is like a marionette-style puppet, and it's made out of ice. No kidding. It is so cool. How do they, the, what do they do? Does it melt all the time? Yes, it melts during the show, and then we have to make a new puppet for every perform every performance. Does the puppet look the same? Yes. Well, we have, like, these molds, and, and, it, and it's, like, a complicated, like, two-day process to make it, to make each puppet. Oh, crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. It's really, it's really f- fantastic. My life has been in such turmoil over the last couple of months. I didn't even know this was going on because I know that my girlie would have absolutely yes. loved yes. I'm, to I, go to I that. I wish I could have. Uh, it was just such a whirlwind of activity. We were, like, in France, like, in, in, in early January, and we came back and immediately, like, loaded in and put the show up and, and worked on it. And it was it was a lot of lot of hard work. So obviously when it came over from France it was just the molds. It wasn't yeah, the, yeah, yeah. there was no, no frozen thing at course. that point. We right, make, right. We had to make the crazy. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. It's really neat. It's a it's a really uh, beautiful show. What's the name of it? It's called Anywhere. It's kind of like a story of Oedipus and Antigone on their journeys and stuff. It's kind of surreal and uh, I don't know, just a lot of pic- cool p- pictures and now I wanna, visuals. Now I want to go get my uh, warm up my time machine and go back to January and <laughs> well, see the show. Well, we might. We're hoping to do some touring and and maybe we'll do it again next year. So. All right, so you're going to be doing some touring right now? No, like in the very it probably near won't be until the fall. Okay. Yeah. Looking forward to it. And also, can I just come over to your garage and you can do the show for me? <laughs> Not me on my, by myself. <laughs> so we are very sad to report that producer Lindsay Gorey has moved on to more financially rewarding work, and we wish her the best of luck in her endeavors. Lindsay contributed to This Is Hell in many ways that will have a positive impact on the show. For years to come, she will be missed, and it was our honor and privilege to have her as part of the, sh- of the crew and to work with her here on This Is Hell. That said, This Is Hell is, again, looking for new producers. We currently have, I believe, four producers. I just got an email from someone overnight who says that they can come back to, returning to uh, producing the show as well. But if you can make it, to our studio at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood and work from 9.30 a.m. to about 1 p.m. any one or more days, Monday through Thursday each week and believe in what we do here on the show, 
you too can be part of our staff. If you are interested, just email me at chuck at thisishell.com and tell me why you are interested and would like to be a producer here on This Is Hell. By, become, by becoming part of our staff, you will get a number of perks, including access to a professional studio for you to engage in your own projects, which we will happily promote. Do you already do a podcast but want to do it somewhere other than your acoustically challenged basement or bedroom or dining room or wherever you happen to do it? Join us on This Is Hell, and you will have access to our studio as well. More important than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Oh, boy. This week's hangover cure. No, question oh, from hell. question from hell. Sorry. I wanted to do, I'm uh, I so know. excited about the, the hangover cure. This, <laughs> this week's question from hell is, what are you repressing? What are you repressing? And I can tell the media is repressing their memories of how they contributed uh, to causing the war on Iraq. So perfect question as we continue to, to commemorate uh, the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the war on Iraq here on the show as well as on our Patreon podcast. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us at This Is Hell Radio. You can send us an email at chuck at com. but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell at the same time that we do every week, and that's following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin at the end of this week's show. If your answer is our favorite, you can get, you can choose whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want, and uh, that will be your prize for answering the question from hell in the way that we like the most. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Richard has this week's lengthy hangover cure. <laughs> this week's. Hangover Cure is supposed to be one of the world's weirdest hangover cures, but in fact, it's the world's worst. And thank you for finding this, by the way, Richard. On New Year's Day 2015, Gizmodo posted the story, The World's 19 Weirdest Hangover Remedies. Gizmodo then mentions that they claim what... They then mention what they claim is Vietnam's weirdest hangover cure. Winter, Brent... No, writer. Oh, writer. Yeah. Writer Brent Rose. <laughs> he should be a winter. Uh, he should Rose. be a winter. Yeah. I, I grow winter Brent Roses all over my house every year. <laughs> he states that this one is terrible on several levels. In Vietnam, some people grind rhino horn into hot water and drink it. Disgusting. Gizmodo then links to an article at the independent online news site out of South Africa with the headline, Rhino Horn, the new hangover cure in Vietnam. <laughs> They cite a 2012 reported title, report titled The South Africa Vietnam Rhino Horn Trade Nexus. <laughs> Who oh knew? Oh boy. The report identifies four types of rhino horn consumers in Vietnam. These include not only the terminally ill, but also users who take the horn as a detoxifying agent for alcohol and rich food. A third consumer group, according to the report, identifies mothers who keep horn to treat their children's fevers. Good luck with that. Yes. The fourth group uses a horn as an expensive gift to curry favor with high-ranking officials. Gizmodo's Brent Rose adds, Rhino horn is believed to, quote, cure everything from allergies to cancer. As a result, the demand for rhino horns is so high that those amazing creatures are being poached in insane numbers. Look, there's no way to, there's no way at this works. So stop killing the rhinos, okay? That makes this week's hangover cure, hangover cure not 
ground rhino horn. <laughs> Coming up on the show, we will demystify the long-held myth that Reconstruction failed when in fact it was the target of a war on freedom by white supremacists led by the Klan. We'll tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Former producer Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history, will be giving us a peek of the past inside the present as he provides us with the historical context from the past to have a better understanding of our present. Richard, what is Seb talking about this week on Past Inside the Present? Oh boy. Seb returns to the history of the Soviet Union. This time we follow the bruised and battered worker and peasant state out of the aftermath of World War II and into the Cold War. Live from the United States where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell and in the former Confederate States of America immediately following the end of the Civil War and the initiation of Reconstruction. The law actually became the enforcer of crime. White supremacists were allowed to threaten, intimidate, commit violence against, and even kill with impunity any African-American who was showing any degree of success within their newfound freedom. No, Reconstruction wasn't the failure that lost cause fanatics insist it was. While white And white chivalry did not exist, but what did exist was violent white supremacists who launched a war on freedom. Here to help us understand what really happened with Reconstruction, historian Kadada E. Williams is author of I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Welcome to This Is Hell, Kadada. Thanks, Chuck, for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is a fascinating book. And I guess just the first question I have is, how commonly today, I mean, and if you want to explain in the past as well, but how commonly today in our, the typical K through 12 public education system, if Reconstruction is mentioned at all whatsoever, how often or how common is it that the uh, lost cause myth of Reconstruction being a failure because African-Americans were given too much freedom and too much uh, equality and too much political power. How often do we find that in actual public school curriculum? So can you hear me? Uh, now I can. Go ahead. Okay. Yes. Okay. So part of what happens is that a lot of times we don't get any coverage of Reconstruction at all. Um, and a lot of times that's because of where it falls and where we teach U.S. history. It's either at the end of one section of a course or of a uh, semester or it's at the beginning of another. And so it often gets a lot of short shrift. And when teachers do cover it, they often sort of use this language of failure, but they're not really explicit all the time about um, directly invoking the lost cause narrative, they just use the language of failure to describe what happened. Um, but what we know is that when you trace that language back, um, that it sort of linked directly to the lost cause. And other times what people are doing is they're saying, well, the federal government failed, right, to enforce the rights, but they're never coming out and saying that directly. So oftentimes Reconstruction's failure gets blamed on Black people or carpetbaggers and scalawags. Right. Uh, and you don't really get a sense of the violence that's used to bring it down. You don't get really get a sense of all of the successes that African-Americans managed to achieve during that period, as long as you're teaching it from that failure of perspective. 
So what achievements were made by African-Americans during this period of time? Because far too often when we do hear Reconstruction talked about or when we do hear issues talked about relating to African-Americans in general, it is often seen as a story of victimization. And this is certainly not a story of victimization. This is a story of empowerment. So what kind of political success did they have before the war on freedom started by uh, white supremacists? Well, I think it's important to recognize that they picked themselves up from slavery. They reunite their families. They secure, uh, you know, as they can, as much as they can in the uh, sort of former slaveholding South. They secure jobs. They secure, um, you know, they open their own businesses. Some of them start to acquire land. They are voting and serving in office. Their children are in schools. They erected new schools for their children. They've even got churches and all of these supportive institutions. So what they do in those first few years is to do whatever they can to reverse everything that slavery denied them. So they pick themselves up. They do everything they need to. And they are living their best emancipation dreams. And for those who aren't able to do that, it's because they're running into the reality of the former enslavers trying to stop them from succeeding. And you begin by describing how on a November night in 1871, some 10 miles east of Aberdeen, Mississippi, Edward Crosby stepped outside to get some water for his thirsty child when suddenly he heard and felt the thunder of a team of horses. He gazed out, and either by moonlight or the glow of his torch, he saw about 30 disguised men descending on his home, their mounts draped by full-body cloth coverings. Mrs. Crosby, who must have seen or heard the men approaching too, asked Edward who and what they were. Edward had heard stories about armed white men on horseback galloping through the countryside and torturing and murdering black families in the middle of the night during recent elections. Their perpetrators and their apologists often referred to these raids euphemistically as visits, masking their brutality behind the veneer of a friendly social call. Edward told his wife he reckoned the gang heading for them was what people in their community called Ku Klux shorthand for the Ku Klux Klan. To what extent, then, is violence and intimidation during election season a part of the African-American cultural or societal memory that there is an, an historical association with the kinds of voter suppression that has been expanding in the United States over the last couple of decades, fueled by the myth of rampant voter fraud. How much is contemporary African-American culture, society, and memory affected by this history of a past where visits were done by the Klan when it came time specifically to vote? So I think it's it's critical, right? It's a huge component of African-Americans' understanding of this period, even if the larger population doesn't know about it. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's so many voters, elected officials. So you've got African-Americans, you've got more than 1,400 African-Americans elected into office in the South. And so that's from the local level through the state house. So you've got all of these men who are elected into office and they often get a bullseye on their backs. And it's because they understand, um, their attackers, I should say, understand that if Black people can vote, they have a say in governance. If they can, if they have a say in governance, they can establish policies that can protect their interests, that make sure that they can hold on to all of the gains that they've managed to managed to achieve since slavery was abolished. 
And so violence becomes a critical means of disfranchising Black men, but it's not enough. What we'll see, you know, after this period of Reconstruction is, or, you know, as Reconstruction is being dismantled, is an understanding that the violence isn't going to be enough to stop Black men from voting and trying to serve in office because they understand how critical that is to their freedom. And so that's why, you know, we will see white Southerners take advantage of other means like the grandfather clause, literacy tests, and the poll tax, et cetera, to deny them the, to deny Black people Black men in this case, the right to vote because the violence alone wouldn't make black men stand down from voting. You also point out that when the men did arrive at Edward Crosby and his family's door after he tried to vote, they brought with them white Southern hate for who the Crosbys were and what their new lives and status as freed people represented. Was it, not that any racism is plain and simple, but was it plain, simple racism, hating because of the color of skin? What, or was it a more complex racism in its many forms? Or did the former slaves represent something else the white people who continued to impose violent control after the Civil War? What did the freed slaves represent? So I think what the, you know, African-Americans snatched freedom from their enslavers during the Civil War. Right. So they managed to get out of this incredibly inhumane system. And a system that had existed for more than two centuries in the United States. And not only do they manage to get free, but they are in the process of trying to take advantage of every opportunity that had been denied to them while they were enslaved. And so for white supremacists, for enslavers, the only sort of position, the only value Black people had in their minds in the society was as enslaved people, as people whose labors and lives could be stolen and exploited, you know, et cetera. So with people like Edward Crosby and his family, they are defying that. They are acting in open defiance of that. And, you know, they are rebuilding their families. They are seizing, you know, the American dream. They're trying to get a piece of the American pie and they are making the most of it. You know, they're defying all of the racist expectations that black people would just suddenly die off, you know, in, you know, in freedom that they didn't know how to take care of themselves because white people apparently had been taking care of them so well during slavery. And so what you have are all of these men and women and families who reverse the tide. And they are doing so well. So a lot of it has to do with sheer racism and this sort of investment in, you know, sort of like what we today call racial capitalism, the sort of like investment in exploiting them, the investment in treating them as, you know, within these sort of ways that are really about extracting their lives, their labor, all of the resources in their community and cutting them off from anything that would detract from white Southerners' ability to exploit them. So a lot of this is sort of ingrained racism that's rooted very closely to slavery. Those investments don't just magically disappear because slavery has now been abolished. So it undid the myth of African-American dependence upon white people in order to survive. It broke that myth of dependence. Is this, was the reaction, the retribution, the vengeance that was meted out by uh, white supremacists, was that because it, un it was against their denialism of the past? Did it 
did it undo the myth and therefore undo the denialism they had of the past and that, therefore you got this violent vengeful retribution so i think that's part of it you know like it does you know they hold on to the myth right they continue making these claims and these statements, even in the face of all of this world making that we see African-Americans uh, doing at this time. And because they can't just magically get back black people to go black to go back to the farms and plantations because they can't get black people to stand down. What they want to do is tear down and destroy everything they've managed to build after slavery to leave them with nothing so that they have no choice but to submit to white rule. So is this then just another example of American denialism, whether it's about, you know, American exceptionalism, American innocence? Is this just another part of the American culture and society that we have where it's in very much, very much in denial of its actual history and the way that the historical record reveals it? I think that the failure to teach what actually happened during Reconstruction is absolutely a part of that. You know, if you cast it as a failure, then you can sort of, it's easier to whistle past it. If you don't want to deal with the discomfort of white Southerners uh, waging war on Black people and white Northerners and Westerners essentially letting them, and the reason they essentially let them is because they have some of the exact same investments in white supremacy as white Southerners do. If you don't cover the history, then you can hold on to the mythology of American exceptionalism. But is that sustainable? Is that kind of denialism of our history, is, is that sustainable? Or eventually, can we just bide our time? And eventually, people will come around to the real historical record. I mean, white supremacy is a powerful, is a powerful drug. You know, so I and, you know, we're also in this moment where people are actively uh, banning the teaching of this history. Right. So that becomes a way of ensuring that it's sustained. It becomes a way of shutting down um, people's access to accurate history, accurate knowledge about what happened. So I think that it can be sustained unless more of us play a very active role in making sure that we understand this history and that we share this history and that this history is taught in K-12 schools. We are speaking with historian Kadada E. Williams, author of I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. So do we know to what extent if this violence, this retribution that happened during uh, Reconstruction, if that was what black Americans in the South expected once the war was over, retribution or blowback for the Confederacy losing the war, turning that violence and hatred toward African-Americans? Or was there a sense that this kind of violence, potentially deadly violence, was finally over following the war. What Was this revenge expected? I think that African-Americans knew white Southerners very well. And slavery was an incredibly violent institution. You don't hold people against their will. You don't steal their lives or their labor without insane amounts of violence. And so Black Southerners knew white Southerners very well. So they knew that this was going to be hard. But I think what the records reveal is that they believed, they hoped that the federal government would uh, provide, would honor its commitments in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment and provide protection. 
That's what they hope for. That's what they believe. And when they testify before Congress um, and when they write letters to senators, to governors, and, you know, if they try to reach out to the presidents of the United States during this time period, what they're trying to do is to sort of signal we are American citizens. We are deserving of federal protection. Um, so they they expect the violence. They believe they understand that it will be very hard. But what they're hoping for is that the federal government will honor its obligations to them as citizens. You write economic violence rendered families like Edward Crosby's vulnerable to retaliatory eviction against organized white resistance. It would be hard for Edward to secure employment, shelter and life's necessities anywhere else in the county but his home. And as if threats of being unhoused were not enough, Paramilitary gangs like the Klan had massed across the region. Edward and other black people were, quote, living like lost sheep, he later said, doing their best to survive. Was that physical violence and intimidation necessary to enforce the economic violence inflicted upon African Americans by those who were white? Did the two kinds of violence depend upon each other for either to be sustainable? Was violence necessary to enforce structural inequality. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I think the 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 key to remember is the through line from slavery to freedom. So, uh how much did the union win and the confederacy lose the civil war? Did the Do it. Uh, I'm sorry, we uh, lost you just there for a second. So, sorry. Um can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, sorry. Uh, so if you understand the violence of slavery, you understand the through line to emancipation. If you understand that it took incredible amounts of violence to steal Black people's lives and labor, you understand that even though slavery has been legally abolished, white Southerners, former enslavers who are invested in white supremacy, um, they are going to continue to use that same kind of violence against Black people. It had worked for more than 200 years. Why would it suddenly not work? Uh, just because the federal government said that Black people were free. So what they're trying to do is to continue um, to sort of uh, hold on to as much of slavery as they can. And so violence becomes the way and a very effective way to try to do that. So then how much did the Union win and the Confederacy lose the Civil War? Did the Union victory mean slavery was replaced in the South with just a structural arrangement that kept many of the aspects of slavery intact? So I don't think that's what they had in mind going in, but I think they don't count on uh, the sort of resolve of white Southerners to try to continue to achieve the aims of the war through other means. And for those who are aware of it, their own investments in white supremacy play a role in them essentially letting the white South um, do what they ultimately end up doing. And I think this is important to recognize because white Northerners, just as though, just as there is a lost cause narrative for the South, white Northerners and Westerners have spun a related tale. And it's that they're all abolitionists. That's the story that we get as Northerners. And the truth of the matter is that if they had all been abolitionists, they could have abolished slavery before the war. Right. Because there were more of them. There were greater concentrations of white northerners and white westerners um, than there were white southerners. So they could have abolished slavery at any time if they were these abolitionists that we've been told. But that's actually not true. They have some of the exact same investments in white supremacy. It's just that the bulk of the black population lives in the South. 
So they're happy to let white Southerners go and do what they want to do. You've got a very small segment of the white Northern and Western population that's willing to actually try to do something to try to stop this violence. But they're outnumbered by people who are willing to sort of whistle past it. I think this is important because with the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment, Congress says, you know, the language in the amendment says that Congress has the power to enforce the amendments. And what we know is that for, you know, a good portion of the time, there isn't the will in Congress to enforce those amendments. And they're also not getting the pressure from their white constituents in the North and West to enforce those amendments. And so I think, you know, when we talk about mythology, we need to be aware of the sort of larger national mythologies and how that's shaping how white Northerners and Westerners, for example, are responding to uh, emancipation era and reconstruction violence. Did the United States, did the Union have to allow, were they forced into allowing this kind of apartheid violently enforced to continue post-war in order to bring about reunification of the North and South? Was there some kind of deal with the devil and the deal had to do with apartheid? I mean, I don't know that they were forced as much as, you know, because they had won the war. If they had had the resolve, if they had had the will, if they had the commitment, they could have sent more troops south to enforce the uh, to enforce the Reconstruction Amendments. They chose not to. Um, and I think I think that is something indicative or it's something revealing about the nation. Uh, it's revealing about those larger investments in white supremacy and black subjugation. It's revealing about those notions of white freedom. Um, and a white peace after the war, as long as the white and as long as the white people from the north, south, and west got along, everything was going to be fine. And so they could sit aside and watch white Southerners declare war and wage war, I should say, on black Southerners and do nothing about it. So I think this is a larger sort of part of the mythology. These investments in um, these investments in American exceptionalism lead us to think that you know, white Northerners and Westerners and that the federal government, that they were completely helpless. They were not helpless. If anyone was in a position to stop the war white Southerners were waging on Black people in the South, it was white Northerners and Westerners. It was members of Congress. It was the President of the United States. It was the Supreme Court. They chose not to. Not only that, but they uh, African-Americans at the time, uh, these uh, formerly enslaved Americans, they had a very clear and very, I would say, revolutionary idea about what democracy is. You write how they uh, how the Emancipation Proclamation and 13th and uh, Amendment were the first steps on the road to freedom, not the last. Freedom wasn't just about legal equality or the vote for them. It was about family and community. The franchise was a means to help black families and communities achieve their goal. The end of any oppressive systems and practices that denied them their right to be free, equal, and secure. So to African-Americans at the time, how did legal equality and the vote fall short of what freedom can and should be? So what I think for them, it's the lack of enforcement, right? Because they are able to enjoy this uh, for a period of time and then they're not. And they are, um, you know, those rights are stripped away. They are denied and then nothing is done about it. 
And so for them, they recognize and they experience in their real lives the loss of power, the loss of self-determination, the loss of control over their labor, um, the loss of land, the loss of community when they have to flee their homes um, in order to find uh, security from this violence. Um, for I think for African-Americans, there is a sort of great sense of loss and betrayal by the nation for failing to honor and uphold uh, and enforce the law of the land. So more generally, do you think that this lost uh, for African-Americans at the time, that they lost faith in democracy writ large, not just lost faith in the Ameri- in the United States or lose faith in the United States version of democracy, but did African-Americans lose faith in democracy in general? I think that some might have, but I think what we see from their ongoing fight um, the sort of way they sort of uh, hunker down and, you know, get ready for the night for the next wave of the fight that they continue to believe. And they continue to hope. Um, and that's part of what we see. And they try to build a new world um, and to try to protect their rights and their interests with the hope that they would again be able to participate in American democracy, that they would be able to um experience those aspects of the American dream to have access to opportunity to secure um, the future for their children. Um, So they continue to believe and they continue to hope and they continue to fight in ways that make sense to them. I don't think that the vast majority of them give up. I think some recognize that their lives may be worth more than the vote. Um, So some people, they do stand down from voting, but I think the vast majority of them still continue to fight and they still continue to try to vote. That's why white Southerners will need the poll tax, the literacy test, the understanding clause and the grandfather clause to deny them access to um, their right to participate in American democracy. And you point out that in 1865, retired U.S. Army General Carl Schurz advised Americans against indulging in any delusions about the real state of affairs in the South. They, uh, he writes, or he notes that they were canny. The uh, the people would eventually become Klansmen. They were canny, biding their time until federal troops left a specific sect. Uh, Schurz noted the incorrigibles refused even the pretense of honorably accepting defeat. Furious at losing some of their cherished privileges of political and racial supremacy, these Confederates revolted, unleashing their rage at accomplished and aspiring black families. So you touched on this earlier, but I want to make sure that people understand this. Is there any evidence to suggest that had the federal troops who occupied the South following the war stayed longer, that they could have waited out those who bided their time and unleashed their violence once the troops left? Did troops leave early or was ending white power through federal occupation just simply unsustainable? I think part of it is that it's unsustainable. Um, and what we know is that when we look at the troop levels, I think you know people, they have an, an inflated sense of how many troops there were. Uh, each year out from the end of the war, the footprint uh, is decreasing, right? And so the troop levels are declining significantly. Um, and they're declining in part because White Southerners are saying we shouldn't have an occupying army. We, you know, we declared peace. Um, you know, white um, white conservatives in the North are also saying, you know, they're echoing white Southerners and saying, you know, we need to get back to states' rights. Um, there shouldn't be an occupying army. A lot of the soldiers they've had their um their stints extended time and time again, and they want to go home. So part of this is 
you know, um, part of this is it's unsustainable. It raises questions like how long is this going to go on? Um, and for some, um, you know, white uh, Americans who are invested in white supremacy, it's, you know, for them, they're much more interested in letting the white South um, retain control over the black population. So they're like, well, let's just withdraw the troops and let's just go home. So I think part of it is that it is, it's, I think it's politically unsustainable. I think that if the will had been there, if the will nationwide had been there, if the will had been there with the troops, if the will had been there with the civilians, if the will had been there with the elected officials in the federal government, that they probably could have uh, done more to um, exact a greater punishment um, for those who played a role in starting the Civil War through secession and who were actively waging war on Black Southerners. They did have the power um, but I think it, there was an issue of not wanting to sort of exercise it on behalf of Black people in the South. And so that there's a big difference there. And I think we need to make sure we thread that needle. So did the Union win the military war of the Civil War, but not the war of ideas? Because, you know, this kind of reminds me of a lot of people who are saying in around 2003, 2002, 2001, that the war on terror couldn't ever win because it was a war on an idea. You can win a military war. Not that the U.S. won a war in Afghanistan or Iraq or any part of the war on terror, but there's this idea that, you know, it was a war on an idea and you can't win a war on ideas militarily. Is that the same lesson that we should take from the Civil War, that you can win a military war, but not win a war on ideas? Yes, I think I think I think that's part of it. And but I also think that the war of I think it's hard to win a war on ideas like in this case that black people have the right to be free, equal and secure uh, if the majority of the population doesn't believe that. Right. Black people certainly believe that uh, certain, uh, you know, white abolitionists believed it, too. But there just weren't enough of those white abolitionists who believed that black people were entitled to those rights, that they should be able to be free, equal and secure in order to um, make sure that that happened. So you also point out that speaking with one voice, they said white Southerners were not attacking black people impulsively or defending themselves from black violence, as former Confederates and their apologists claimed. They were purposefully waging war on black people's freedom. Witnesses like Edward Crosby wanted the nation to end the war and restore what black people had lost. Has that war on freedom, in your opinion, has it returned and did it ever leave? I don't know that it ever left. I think that, you know, it diminished um, in certain areas. um, But what we've seen are these cycles of white backlash to black progress. Um, And so we saw this um, with the we saw this with Reconstruction. We saw this with the civil rights movement um, and the white backlash to that. And I think we're in another moment of white backlash. Um, And you can see like how it definitely targets uh, black people advocating for freedom and liberty and equality um, with surgical precision. 
You write extensively about the uh, 1871 Klan hearings, and you write that in the case of the Klan hearings, some lawmakers who sought information about raids as part of an investigation into electoral fraud and disenfranchisement thought these insights were irrelevant and often dismissed this information. Many historians have followed the investigators' lead in their desire to understand the role Klan violence played in undermining Reconstruction, shaping American politics, and maintaining white supremacy. Later scholars and analyzing these transcripts have often rushed past or ignored much of what survivors said about what this violence did to their families. But the personal truly is political. The war on freedom changed the course of our history, and black Southerners experienced that war first and foremost as individuals, families, and communities. How do you see the war on black families still that war on black families still shaping U.S. politics today? And why have we not been able to move past or shake off that legacy of the war on not just freedom, but the war on black families? Right. I think, you know, it's we I don't like to draw direct lines between the past and the present, but I'll say that there are related practices, um, especially in terms of making sure or denying people what they need to survive. And that's not only something that's happening to Black families, uh, it's increasingly happening to all families. And I think that's part of what we see in this moment of backlash. Um, you know, the struggles that a lot of um, white Americans may be facing in this moment, Black Americans were facing them several decades ago. And so the failure to sort of address the um, those realities, the failure, the sort of cutting of the safety net, um, the allowing police to menace and terrorize and brutalize Black communities um, is related to this. Um, the sort of, you know, willingness to sort of blame the victim, to not address the realities, the economic realities of the desperate need for jobs in many communities does result in families being abandoned and left on their own without any support. And then, you know, you turn around and you think that the only way to address that is with more and more policing as opposed to giving people what they actually need to survive and be whole. So I think these are ongoing patterns um, that we've seen, um, but they change. And I think we need to sort of like acknowledge those kinds of changes, like in terms of time, in terms of place, in terms of the structure and even the systems that are involved in terms of um, denying people what they need in order to survive. And so there was a war on freedom. There was a war on the black family. Fifty years later, the same thing was happening after uh, Reconstruction with the rise of Black Wall Street, as we discussed last summer with law scholars Andre Douglas Pond Cummings and Calvin Graham, uh, who were on to talk about their uh, writing that appeared in the Tulsa Law Review, Racial Capitalism and Race Massacre, Tulsa's Black Wall Street and Elaine's Sharecroppers. So does uh, does that also linger in politics today? A desire by some to punish African Americans for success when it comes to what might be described as the American dream. Was this also a war on success? And does that have a lingering legacy as well in American politics? Yes, absolutely. You know, we and you see it in like a variety of places. You see it in the assumptions that black people may have jobs or they may gain access to certain schools only because of affirmative action. It can't be that they're bright and intelligent and that they've worked hard. It's got to be that they, you know, that, that they are somehow undeserving. And those standards are, you know, certainly not applied to 
to white people, uh, rarely applied to white people. Um, and so you do see, I think, a lot of these repeating patterns, these repeating um, this um, sort of white racial grievance against black success. You know, and we saw it with the election of Barack Obama. We see it with elected members of Congress. We see it when there are black mayors. We see it when people are in their everyday jobs and promotion. We see the grievance come out if someone happens to drive a nice car or sit in the first class of a plane. Um, so there is this underlying, um, I think, investment in some you know white people's minds that black people shouldn't have any success or that any success that they managed to enjoy, they haven't earned. You mentioned in your book how uh, the war on freedom during Reconstruction is going to, or in uh, 2021, it had its sesquicentennial, its 150-year anniversary. Why do you think events like Tulsa get commemorated, but not the war on Reconstruction? I think, the you know, for a while, you know, Tul Tulsa's only recently been um, marked and remembered. You know, for a really long time, only the survivors knew of about what happened and a select group of historians. But now, as a result of popular culture, you've got more people knowing about what happened. I think that in terms of the war on Reconstruction, we could, you know, reach a moment where there is a better understanding of it so that it is marked. I mean, I think one of the things we have to also recognize is that, you know, Americans push for the, to celebrate Juneteenth. And, you know, without knowing what follows, the story that I tell in my book is part of what follows, you know, the sort of grand celebrations of emancipation. And I think that first, um, a lot of Americans, there's this investment in only celebrating the successes and only celebrating the wins. And I think with Reconstruction, the larger public just doesn't know enough about what happened in order to understand what should be marked and what should be mourned about this period. You write the violence unleashed on African-Americans was totalizing physical, psychological, spiritual, economic, social and political, just as Knight Riders intended. This was why these survivors turned philosophers, the former slaves, theorized they would never get over what had happened and did not use the language of healing. They would never be able to overcome what happened to them during the war on freedom, to at least emotionally overcome it. What happens when a generation loses the ability to heal? Can that have a legacy on future generations? And if so, what might that inability, inability to heal, what impact might that have? It absolutely leaves its mark. Um, and I think, you know, what survivors, you know, what we see when they theorize on what is happening to them and what might still happen to them in the future as a result of them being attacked is their understanding that they'll never be made whole again. Landowners, men who left slavery, acquired land, and were living their best life are driven off of their property and out of their communities with only the clothes on their back. They lose everything and they have to start over from scratch. A lot of people, when they start over from scratch, they never get back to where they were. They never hit that same mark of success that they had before. A lot of people who survive these clan raids are left with devastating physical injuries. And so they can't take care of themselves. They can't take care of their families the same way that they had been able to before. 
families are broken. Some families are broken apart by what happened to them during raids. They can't live with each other after what happened to them. And so when I talk about the totalizing nature of the violence, what I'm trying to do is to drill down into and to sort of pull out um, survivors' um, clarity on what happened to them. Historians, when they talk about this violence, o- often only focus on the political aspects of it, that they were disfranchised. But what survivors are saying is that, yes, I was disfranchised, but these are all of the other things that have happened and that are happening to my family and me as a result of being attacked. And it's not, it's, you know, for some people, they may be able to get over uh, losing the vote, but they will not get over losing a child to a raid. They will not get over being driven off their land. They will not get over having their husbands killed and the federal government not doing anything to bring them justice. And so what we know and what we can imagine is that a lot of these families who were targeted and who experienced these raids, that they carry the scars with them. And they may pass them on to future generations in how they parent and how they love and how they withhold parts of themselves and their inability to come to terms with what happened to them. Those are the things that would sort of be passed on, even if people didn't talk about what they were passing on. They're passing on the experiences of what happened to them, what was done to them and the larger betrayal by the nation. So are those stories still central within Black society, Black culture, African-American families? Are these stories still part of oral family histories that are handed down within families with ancestors who are from ancestors who uh, survived the war on freedom that destroyed Reconstruction? Are those stories very much a central, uh, to what degree are they uh, part of African-Americans' remembered oral histories? So I don't think they are part of a lot of African-Americans remembered history. I think what's happening in this moment is that more and more uh, African-Americans and their allies are digging into this history. And so what I suspect is that as more people start to dig and they start to look for additional records, they will find some of their family stories in some of these records that I've analyzed. And that's one of the reasons why I try to uh, create this appendix in the back of the book, so that if um, people want to know whether or not their families testify before Congress, they have, they have uh, access to the information. Um, and I think that's important because I think a lot of these memories have faded. I think it took like um, it, families probably hold on to them for one, two, maybe three generations. Um, and then the memory started to fade as people who remember those stories, hearing them directly from the survivors um, passed away. And the great thing about the historical record, the great thing about those Klan hearings in 1871 is that those records survive. And that's how you learned about what really happened during Reconstruction and how many historians should have learned about what really happened during Reconstruction. But unfortunately, that record was ignored. You write that lawmakers' investigation, combined with sporadic increases in state militias and federal troops in some zones of attack, had a suppressing effect, eventually driving strikes underground, these strikes on people's homes, at least for the time being. When extremists uh, turned to new forms of violence to oppress African Americans, the findings uh, from the Klan hearings and the Exodister hearings could have inspired lawmakers and the larger public to press for the enforcement of civil rights legislation and 
and the Reconstruction Amendments. The Exodusster uh, hearings were also were in 1879 about African Americans' mass migration northward. You add it was easier for some federal white federal officials and citizens to unofficially pardon perpetrators, closing the book full of foul blots on the pages of U.S. history in the name of national healing from the Civil War and a reconciliation among white Americans. So, were the hearings themselves any more than just political theater meant to give the impression something was being done while eventually not doing anything to challenge the status quo? Were these outside of the historical records, which is very, very important, did these have any impact whatsoever on racism writ large in the United States? I don't think it does. What it does do in the moment is play a role in um, in you know, the larger investigation does play a role in generating some support for the boost of uh, troop levels in certain areas. Um, but, you know, as you acknowledged earlier, uh, the perpetrators are, you know, white extremists at this time. They're canny. You know, so they won't attack if there are if there are increased troop levels in a region, they'll just attack 100 miles away. Um, so they'll be very strategic in the violence that they continue to commit. So I think that African-Americans hope that the violence will completely end and go away. Um, it doesn't. It just sort of diminishes for a time period. And then the nation kind of closes the book. So it does become, unfortunately, a kind of political theater. And what we know is that the investigations and even the troop levels, when they're boosted, they come so late Right. That it doesn't really that that it doesn't for a lot of people protect them um, from being harmed in the first place. We have one last question for you, Kadada. We've been speaking with historian Kadada E. Williams, author of I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. You can uh, find out more about Kadada at KadadaEWilliams.com. You can follow Kadada on Twitter at Kadada E. Williams, and you can find her podcast, Seizing Freedom, at SeizingFreedom.VPM.org. One last question for you, Kadada. And I promise we do this with every one of our guests. But our final question is called the question from hell. It's the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. So you write that families were the cornerstones of their individual and collective freedom. Family was the glue that bound people together. Voting, office holding, and equal rights were a means to a future in which black families would be free and secure. That was why Confederates struck at the very heart of freedom when they overthrew the revolutionary experiment in multiracial democracy. Understanding black family stories of racing into freedom and the price right-wingers made them pay in the war against it, Americans learned that the arc of our history doesn't always bend toward justice, despite what many people have said on our show. The real story is essential to understanding why more than a century and a half later, our struggle continues. How much do you think the United States at the time of Reconstruction, how much did the U.S. government want that revolution in democracy to succeed, and how much did they want it to fail? That is a hard question. Um, <laughs> it doesn't usually work that way, so I appreciate it. Right. Um, you know, what, what, I, what I'll say is that there, you know, if we acknowledge the complexity of the United States, uh, we can allow for the possibility that, you know, maybe a third 
of the um, third of the federal officials, third of the nation, um, the white part of the nation wanted Reconstruction to be successful um, and that the other didn't. Um, but what I will say is, and I, and I think we can see that in terms of what we actually get, the first Civil Rights Act in the history of the world, the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1875, excuse me, um, those will become building blocks for African-Americans in what will become the civil rights movement. So that and African-Americans, you know, who are participating in the civil rights movement, they are hammering away at the nation to enforce the Reconstruction Amendments. And so that generation that lived through Reconstruction, they don't get to enjoy again uh, the rights and freedoms that they fought for and that they experienced during that period, but they lay the foundation for future generations to be able to achieve their dreams of freedom. So what do you think is the likelihood that your book will be uh, available in Florida school libraries? Um, I'm I'm not hopeful, Chuck. <laughs> that should have been my question from hell right there. Thank you. Right? Very, that, thank you very much, Kadada. I really appreciate you being on the show today. This is a fascinating book. And again, as we do, even if we have a 50 minute interview, we just skim the surface of the content of this book and everybody should check out Kadada's new book. Uh, I saw death coming a history of terror and survival in the war against reconstruction. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Take care. This is not the media. This is hell. And you can tell this is not the media because Kadata Williams just did what so many of our guests have done since the late 20th century. And that is to point out that American innocence and exceptionalism is a freaking myth. But denialism of our past is definitely a reality. We shouldn't be thinking about American exceptionalism, which should be focused on American denialism. And for many, if you re refuse to live in that, that fantasy of American exceptionalism and innocence, you are unpatriotic and un-American. Think about that for a moment. A political ideology based on an insistence of accepting a completely made-up story that is not supported by a shred of historical evidence. And that's the brainwashing and grooming people like Governor Ron DeSantis want to call an education. But the media, as well as the Democratic Party and liberals generally, are quickly intimidated by neo-fascist bullies who insist that if you do not believe in a white-washed myth of the past, you are not a real American, whatever the hell that is. But you can bet that kind of real American is muy blanco and armed to the teeth to protect their white privilege and supremacy while claiming neither exists. Because we are not the media, we do not take any advertiser money. We do not apply for or receive any grants from foundations. We do not have the resources to become a not-for-profit or any form of corporation or company, all of which means we depend on the kindness of, well, you, the listening audience, as we are completely listener-supported. So we limit whatever, so we can limit whatever bias or conflict of interest we may have. And everybody has a, bi a bias and everybody has a conflict of interest, but at least ours are not driven by profit seeking for ourselves or our bosses because with your gracious support we do not have a boss other than you find out more by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support or become a patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell where we offer our subscribers an additional episode of this is hell every week recently during our uh, patreon podcast on friday march 24th we took a stroll down grim memory lane as the beginning of the war on Iraq 
marked its 20th anniversary and unsurprisingly got far less coverage than the one-year anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine war. The media looking back on the Russia-Ukraine war reminds the public how unnecessary, avoidable, provocative, aggressive, and criminal that war is and continues to be. And the media definitely does not want to remind the public of the significant role of the press in promoting another unnecessary, avoidable, provocative, aggressive, and criminal war that, yes, for the people of Iraq, still continues. Also on Patreon, we continued our three-part series featuring interviews from the beginning of the war on Iraq. We shared our March 22nd, 2003 interview from three days after the invasion and occupation of Iraq beginning. Our guest was our then go-to expert on all things Middle East, Dr. Stephen Zunis, a professor of politics and international studies at the University of San Francisco and author of the 2003 classic Tinderbox, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Roots of Terrorism, which very much predicted exactly what was going to happen in the Middle East. Stephen joined us to, you guessed it, demystify the many myths that were being promoted by the Bush administration disinformation campaign, which lied the public into war with the help of a free press that freely chose to become propaganda for a war that never needed to be fought. But you can only hear all of that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And thanks to John R., Adam A., Magnificent Me, Brett B., and Neil C. for their amazing support for This Is Hell in the last few weeks. We cannot thank you enough for your support. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what are you repressing? What are you repressing? All right, I'm going to say my urge to urinate right now, but (laughs) let's move forward. I'm going to say this really slowly. (laughs) You bastard. So um, we have a response on Discord. Oh, awesome. Do we want to talk about our Discord server? We have a Discord server. (laughs) I don't know how you get on it. I don't know what you do, but you do something, and then I post on it. I don't know. you got to ask other people who are far more aware of this kind of stuff. I would just look up This Is Hell on Discord and see what happens. That's that's what you do. (laughs) Uh, uh, Someone uh, with the name Eurodove answers, the urge to kill dot 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 time <laughs> wow wow the urge to kill time at least they're not thinking about murdering people i was afraid that somebody was going to say the urge to kill but i'm glad they said time we have a few uh we'll jump over to our patreon system <laughs> every <laughs> patreon time. page whatever <laughs> i don't know Edson C. answers the question from hell is what are you repressing the urge to destroy the entire hellish system. Okay. Peter J. Urging just to kill. I'm glad people are repressing these. (laughs) Peter J. answers nothing, you son of a bee. (laughs) Exclamation point. That sounds like somebody who's repressing something. (laughs) Andrew M. answers every last urge we're getting a lot of urges. urge i guess that's what you press you press urges i guess our ladio answers the damn seam on these trousers <laughs> at least he didn't say britches i appreciate that they're also known as pants but trousers we will accept what are you repressing walter r is that our wally mm-hmm. my outer adult <laughs> okay that's a good thing to repress Paul F. answers the impulse 
to end every single conversation with, the problem is capitalism. <laughs> you don't have to repress that. Just say it at the end. And when you're leaving, it's like it's like uh, just saying goodbye at a party. Don't forget, <laughs> all the problems are capitalism. Gotta go. Dan K answers with a uh, a link to a like a GIF mm-hmm. that was uh, Marlon Brando saying, "What have you got?" <laughs> okay. And our last answer for today is Dean T answers my Neanderthal genes. <laughs> that's what he's repressing. That's yes. pretty good. That's pretty good because that's implies your urge to kill. I think is what's implied in there. And you don't have to say urge to kill. You could just say your Neanderthal genes or trousers in this case. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question well wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show following jeff dorch in the moment of truth when we are announcing this week's winner we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week But now, it is time for our weekly segment, The Past Inside the Present, with Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The Past Inside the Present. Welcome back to Soviet Weeks at This Is Hell, where I talk about the history of the Soviet Union while trying to neither condemn nor glorify the long-gone worker and peasant state. Today, I have a lot of ground to cover, so let's get to it. The Soviet Union arose from the ashes of World War II, battered, devastated, and yet stronger than it had ever been. The collective experience of fighting for survival, that of the nation, but also that of the towns and villages, and of that of families and individuals, unified the citizenry and the state more than revolution and communist ideology ever did before. That the country managed to beat back the awesome, well, not in a good way awesome, obviously, Nazi war machine under Stalin's leadership retroactively justified the rank barbarism and the Stalinist purges of the 1930s to much of the population. The Soviet leader enjoyed extremely high approval among his citizens after the war. However, while the Soviet Union emerged on the side of the victors of the war, the country's economy and large parts of its industrial infrastructure lay in ruins. The Nazi army had killed 27 million people, and among those dead was a significant part of the working-age male population. Much of the country had also suffered from scorched earth tactics, first employed by retreating Soviet troops to hinder the German advances, and then after the tide had turned, the retreating Nazi troops did the same again, laying waste to the villages, farms, and factories that were still standing in their in their way. In rebuilding, Stalin's government focused on heavy industry over raising the standard of living for its citizens. East of the Ural Mountains in southern Siberia, And in Kazakhstan, the new industrial centers that had been built during the war were massively expanded, far out of the reach of any Western European armies. But new Western innovations that had been made in chemistry and agriculture during the war were largely ignored. So the first five-year plan for the post-war era effectively arrested the state of Soviet industry at pre-war levels. 
And then in 1946, a particularly bad drought struck, and this caused yet another horrible famine. And in this time, half a million people starved to death in Ukraine, Moldova, and south-central Russia. And this famine had in part been caused by the bad state of Soviet agriculture after the war. Most farms lacked workers because of the shortage in working-age men, but the war had also drained much of the reserve of farm animals, so that only 40% of collective farms owned any cows and barely anyone ever anywhere owned draft horses. And as in the United States, the war, the war had massively changed the role that the armed forces played in the country and in the perception of the population. The Red Army had gained some influence during the 1930s. However, most of the army leadership had fallen victim to Stalin's paranoia. And so he had nine out of ten leading generals purged in the Great Terror before the war. After the war, Stalin's paranoia did not get any better. However, now that the army had proven to be just too important to just keep on purging he only demoted one uh, one guy marshal uh, georgi sukov who had commandeered the troops that took germany and this move uh, should emphasize towards the red army that the communist party and all above joseph stalin was still the ruling power in the country and not the armed forces just so that nobody got a wrong idea there. However, the armed forces would still play a much bigger role in Soviet life going forward, especially due to the Cold War breaking out and going on. And the Cold War emphasized also that the Soviet Union was still a harsh dictatorship. Millions of people after the war uh, had to be reintegrated into society. Uh, and this happened under the constant threat of draconian punishments. And also the machinations of the party leaders who maneuvered to potentially become Stan's successors resulted in further political purges. For example, the entire leading ca uh, cadre of the Leningrad Party was summarily executed in 1948 of the Leningrad Communist Party. It was rumored that they had gained too much independence from Moscow after the war, um, and the Cold War then gave Stalin secret police and the large network of labor camps new targets, which were suspected traitors to the motherland and Western saboteurs and spies. After the war, Stalin was at the peak of his personal power. His personal political influence over the state, as well as over the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, was really unrivaled at this point. The Red Army controlled much of Eastern Europe, uh, but still he grew increasingly paranoid, and anyone, even close allies, were not safe from that, uh, because anybody who he, who he suspected of disloyalty would be disappeared overnight by the secret police. And when Stalin died of complications following a massive stroke on March 5, 1953, he had not declared anyone to be his successor. The upper echelon of uh, Soviet leadership then nominally divided the power that Stalin had concentrated in his own person, um, but then also not quite unlike after Lenin's death, an inter internal power struggle ensued between the men of Stalin's inner circle. Over the course of three years, one man managed to beat out his rivals, and his name was Nikita Khrushchev, or Khrushchev, as you have it in America. He had been the head of the Communist Party Bureau for the Moscow region, and he had overseen the construction of the metro in the 1930s, and had held various important positions in the Ukrainian uh, Soviet Republic during the war. He had been a mainstay of Stalin's inner circle, which effectively had governed the country from Stalin's dinner table. 
one of Khrushchev's achievements was that he successfully outmaneuvered Stalin's head of the secret police and minister of internal affairs during this power struggle, a man called Lavrenti Beria. Beria had, it, it appeared, had been putting together pieces under his control uh, uh, to conduct a military coup in the country and to take over the reins as leader. But instead, Beria ended up as the last member of the Soviet Union's leadership who uh, was put before a show trial and killed during a power struggle. An interesting element here is that although Stalin's death left a significant power vacuum, the Soviet Union did not experience a major crisis from this. Khrushchev himself was especially critical of Stalin after he uh, took over as, as leader of the party. During a secret speech he gave during the party's 20th con uh, convention in 1956, he denounced the former leader for his various crimes, including genocide and political terror. And in the years that followed, the country went through a process called de-Stalinization. Stalin's cult of personality was Dismantled bit by bit, statues honoring the dictator were torn down and systems of oppression that uh, Stalin had used to maintain power were abandoned. Stalin's dictatorship had finally ended and the system of omnipresent state terror and violence and oppression now became a thing of the past. De-Stalinization concluded with the body of the dead dictator being removed from Lenin's mausoleum and him being reburied in a much less ostentatious grave on the wall of the Kremlin in 1961. During the period immediately following Stalin's death, Khrushchev consolidated the power of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union uh, over other powerful organizations such as the armed forces and other state institutions. However, unlike Stalin before him, he did not seek to personally become the focus of that power, eschewing much of the cult of personality that Stalin has fostered and enjoyed. And meanwhile, a network of labor camps was disbanded and the secret police largely reorganized and scaled back. The country also saw a new system of legislation that left uh, much fewer opportunities for arbitrary and political decision-making in the legal process. There would be no more show trials based on forced confessions going forward. At the end of the 1950s, the Soviet leaders had many reasons to believe that their country would, within a short period of time, overtake the rest of the capitalist world, especially the United States. The Soviet Union detonated its first hydrogen bomb in 1953, only a year after the Americans had done so. And while the Soviet design was far smaller in yield than the American hydrogen bomb, it would have been immediately usable as a weapon, whereas the American project was more of an oversized science project at that stage. In 1957, the Soviet space program made history by launching the first artificial sat satellite called Sputnik 1 into space. And on April 12, 1961, the Soviet Union sent the first human cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin into, into outer space. Inspired by such achievements, the leadership projected that Soviet industrial and agricultural output would expand rapidly and soon overtake that of the United States. But while Soviet production successfully grew during that time, the growth rate was ultimately much smaller than these predictions. The gross national product of the Soviet Union was only 45% of that of the United States in 1961, which was still a remarkable increase from the past, but far from the, promise the, from, from the promises the Communist Party had made to its citizenry. But Khrushchev's leadership style, in which the first secretary often brashly decided to take wholly new directions, which then also resulted in him switching out large parts of the, the leadership, 
over short periods of time did not make him any friends, especially since these overblown promises of a bright future that was just around the corner never materialized. Khrushchev was then also humiliated internationally when the American blockade of Cuba and the threat of global thermonuclear war forced the first secretary to abandon the plans of installing intermediate range uh, ballistic missiles on, on Cuba. In this action... Uh, had narrowly prevented a devastating civilization-ending war, but Khrushchev's own partners and party and government saw this as a humiliation of the Soviet Union and him caving into American military might. And so in 1964, Khrushchev asked that all of his political appointments be withdrawn His and, and uh, officially stated that his advanced age made it difficult for him to lead the country properly. And so he resigned. And with that, we're again out of time. Uh, tune in next week when we cover the tail end of the Cold War and possibly, spoiler alert, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm done. All right. I'm I thought you were, were going to have a tagline there at the end. Hey, so uh, I just wanted to point out something that Kadatis said. She writes about in her book um, uh, that we were just discussing on the show, uh, mm -hmm. I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. She says that the, uh, you know, as you and I know that we've had conversations on the show about this before, that the Confederate statues, a lot of people saw them as commemorating the Civil War, as making the people mm -hmm. who were part of the Civil War into heroes. But she says that the Confederate statues are not about celebrating the Confederacy as much as a victory over reconstruction and its African-American freedom and political power. That's what she says that the statues are commemorating. They're not commemorating anything to do with the Civil War, but the victory over reconstruction. And that's why so many people want those uh, statues taken down, which is a framing I have never had when considering those statues at all. Yeah, but that's but but that's true. I mean, just just look at uh, just look at when these statues were erected. Right. They're like yeah, like they they come up in response to uh, like they come up in, re in response to and like in the same in the same at the same time as the first it's the second Ku Klux Klan emerges and then they come up again like in response to the civil rights movement. So like that's that's kind of uh, that's kind of all very telling. It was very much uh, just a birth of the nation uh, tour. That was going yeah. on around the yeah, country. Basically, we're gonna make sure that thing was true. Sebastian, yeah, always wonderful Chuck. to hear your voice. Yeah, always glad to be on here. All right, I'll talk to you soon. All right, capitalism is the virus. This is hell, Richard. Who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? Our second guest this week will be returning to This Is Hell, Mirza. Murtaza. Murtaza Hussein, a reporter at The Intercept, whose writing focuses on national security and foreign policy. We will talk to Murtaza about his most recent writing, including how Iran won the U.S. war in Iraq. A trove of secret intelligence cables obtained by The Intercept reveals Tehran's political gains in Iraq since the 2003 invasion. And trauma never goes away. As America forgets, Iraq war stays with U.S. veterans. And we rescheduled somebody for Wednesday. Who's our Wednesday guest? We, uh, he, who, uh, Middle East deputy editor at New Lines magazine, Rasha Al-Akida, posted the article, Living and Reliving the U.S. Invasion of Iraq, Two Decades On. I can recall almost every detail of the American occupation in the years that followed. You can find her writing at 
newlinesmag.com. Those subheadlines get us every time. Yes. Also coming up later this week, we will have This Week in Rotten History. We will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at patreon.com slash thisishell, we hope. We will hear a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, and we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell. The winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise absolutely free. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we will be telling you about next week set of shows. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. Thanks to Sebastian Vooper for the past inside the present. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. See, we told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.